Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there have been some changes in Canada's public health guidance in regards to masks and plexiglass. We'll explain exactly what's going on and how effective they're going to be. We also have our weekly political roundup with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan, who covered both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. And it's official. Tim Hortonfield will be the site for a World Cup qualifying game between Canada and the U.S. on January 30th. Match will mark the first time the men's national team has played an international A match in Hamilton. How significant is this? Well, we'll talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on with COVID and some new uh, restrictions and I think some new guidelines. There have been some changes in Canada's public health guidance uh, with both masks and things like plexiglass. As a matter of fact, the plexiglass barriers that popped up just about everywhere during the first few phases of the pandemic uh, may be coming down. Global Sandy Salerno has some details. The plastic shields have become a common sight in grocery stores, retail outlets, workplaces, and even in classrooms. Put up, for example, to separate colleagues from each other or a cashier from a customer to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But some health experts say they may not be that effective and actually may be doing more harm than good. Dr. Peter Uni, who heads Ontario Science Advisory Table, tells the CBC he wants most of the barriers removed. He says the challenge with the plexiglass walls is that if if they're not being put up very selectively in rooms, they can actually impede ventilation in certain settings because the air can't circulate properly, potentially helping the virus to spread. But other health experts like BC's provincial health minister say the barriers do make a difference in certain workplaces and can be helpful in a tighter space, for example, like a coffee shop or a fast food place. Sandy Salerno, Global News. This is not the first time we've heard that. Uh, Teresa Tam, of course, made some mention of this a little while ago. Sandy mentioned in her report, Dr. Peter Uni, uh, who seemed to hint at that. But uh, this is is really kind of a variation on on something that our next guest has been talking about for a number of weeks now. Uh, Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist. Uh, You've seen his writings in the Globe and Mail and also in McLean's magazine. And I want to focus on, on McLean's article that uh, that he wrote, uh, I guess, about three, four weeks ago that was in McLean's magazine that talked effectively about this and that we need to change our strategy. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Justin, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I, I know you're not the sort of guy that says, I told you so, but uh, you certainly would, would have every right to do that. I mean, you've been talking about this for quite some time. And, and, and just so people understand where we're coming from in this, you're not saying that what they did a year and a half ago was wrong. Based on the information we had at the time, right. it was probably the right thing to do. Uh, but we've learned more right now, and I think we need to pivot a little bit here. And that's, that was the essence of the article that you wrote in the, that was in McLean's, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, I, I don't think I even could claim I told you so if I wanted to, because really I'm just trying to channel what a bunch of other people who are much smarter than I am have been saying for quite some time. And really what this comes down to is, is, is quite a simple error, right? There was a mistake made, and it wasn't anyone in Canada. This is a mistake made in, you know, among scientists many decades ago that sort of put us in the situation we're in. And I think when people hear it, they kind of smack their heads and go, oh, you know, that's what went wrong. Basically, many, many decades ago, in the earlier 20th century, um, there was some very, very good science done around the nature of how viruses sort of, you know, operate, how how they infect humans. And there was a calculation done that basically set a, a very specific size in, you know, micrometers, um, micromillimeters, I believe. Um, and it basically said anything over this size 
is going to fall. It is so big, so heavy that it can't float through the air. It is going to fall and it's going to land on things. So we believe that people get sick when this lands on things. You touch it, you get it on your hands, it goes in your nose, it goes in your mouth, it goes in your eyes, and that's how you get sick. Anything below that size, well, that's what floats through the air. That's what we call an aerosolized virus. That is something you can breathe in, something that can actually become dense in the air and can actually make you sick. So, you know, fast forward to present day, the size of COVID-19 is just a little bit over that threshold. So we all thought, quite reasonably, COVID-19 does not float around in the air. It lands on things, more like, the, in, like an influenza virus. Well, a very, very smart grad student in the U.S., um, in the midst of the pandemic, started redoing all that math and said, no, 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 we've had it wrong this whole time. The threshold is actually much higher than we think it is. And in fact, COVID-19 is the perfect size to be an aerosolized virus. It floats through the air. It becomes um, you know, prevalent in the air we breathe, and that's really what is causing probably the vast majority of cases. But that decision, that, that calculus, that correction came last year. And we have been laboring under this misapprehension, this mistake, ever since. All of these plexiglass barriers, they exist on the premise that COVID-19 is too big to float through the air. They exist on the premise that what we have to be worried about is little droplets of the virus heading towards us, that we need to protect ourselves from sneezes and coughs and all this, because that's how the virus lands on us, and that's how we get sick. But in fact, it, 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 as we know now, it's quite the opposite. It floats through the air. And what these plexiglass barriers do is they trap air, they impede airflow, and it's exactly the opposite of what we need to be doing. We need to be pumping in fresh air. We need to be moving the air around. We need to be circulating it. We need to be filtering it with good HEPA filters to stop the prevalence of the virus in the air from reaching a certain threshold where people start getting sick. Is that what happens oftentimes uh, with science? I mean, they, they, you know, we were all scared like hell, and, and I think understandably so when we started to see this thing start to, to manifest itself. Uh, but I guess somebody someplace uh, just decided, oh, yeah, coronavirus, here's the playbook. This is what we do. Yeah. And, and well, you, as you mentioned, you saw the result. We were masking. We were putting plexiglass up. We were, some of us wearing surgical gloves. I mean, you know, you had to wipe down the, you know, the, the gas pump before you filled your car. And, and we thought, well, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, and we now know that that was probably overkill. We didn't need to do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, as, as you just described in the article back then and just reiterated, it, it wasn't really overkill. It was just we were, we were, we were misdiagnosing uh, what this thing was that we were dealing with right now. But why does it take so long for the experts to say, first of all, yeah, we, we got that wrong. Here's the better way. And more importantly, to, to say, okay, now we need to do this instead of what we've been doing. We're not even there yet. They're just starting to talk about that now. Yeah, I mean, science moves, science moves quite slow. But when you get into the public health realm, uh, when you kind of mix bureaucracy with science, things move even slower, right? So there have been really, really smart virologists um, and viral physicists, which is a job I learned exists quite recently, um, who have been saying for you know, almost a year now, you know, we need to fundamentally change our thinking. Because as long as we keep focusing on these droplets, we're going to keep letting rooms of people get sick because we're just not taking the right approach here. Governments heard this. I, I've spoken to uh, someone who works in Public Health Agency of Canada who told me point blank that you know, months ago they raised exactly this problem. And the response they got back from some of the higher ups in public health was, if we change our advice now, people will never trust us again. There is, there is this feeling 
that you kind of have to stay the course, that you can't change until it's absolutely impossible not to, because you need to keep, sort of maintain that rapport with the public. You need to sort of keep that trust with the people who, who need to listen to you. And I understand that. But also, you know, this is why we're supposed to have public health officials. They're supposed to manage risk. They are supposed to give us the best possible advice and the best strategies to ha- for how to protect ourselves. The fact that they continue telling us to do things that are ineffective and maybe counterproductive is absolutely mind-boggling. And this should also be you know, a job for our health minister. Our health minister, including those in every province, need to step in and say, no, 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 we're not doing this anymore. We're taking down the plexiglass barriers now. We are going to tell people that there's no utility in face shields, for example. We are going to uh, ditch all of this useless advice. You know, hand-washing is still great, but you don't have to do it every 10 minutes. Hand sanitizer, mostly ineffective, not a really useful strategy. And we need to stop spending money on it. We are still spending hundreds of millions of dollars on useless or mostly useless strategies, and we're not spending money on the things that really work. If we were able to buy every small, we, were, we would probably be able to buy every small business in Canada a portable HEPA filter for the amount of money we spent on hand sanitizer. But that is not a strategy being pursued at all in any major meaningful way. The Ontario government had promised to improve filtration, air filtration in classrooms around the province, and there's not a lot of evidence that they've made much headway in actually doing that. And these are the things that work. You know, I should say there are certain things that we're doing that are really effective that we need to keep doing. Masking in particular. Every jurisdiction we've seen that has dropped their mask mandate has had calamity follow. It seems very, very clear that people who are sick are breathing less of the viral particles into the air because they're wearing a good three-layer mask, even a medical mask, especially a KN95. That works. We know that works. A lot of the other stuff doesn't. Social distancing, it's pretty good. It's, it's not as effective as some other strategies, but not being so close to someone as you're breathing their air in, it does seem to make a difference. We have a ton of scientific literature that actually breaks down how effective each of these strategies are. Masking, far and away the most effective. Better air filtration, super effective. Social distancing, it's pretty good. Everything else, you cannot draw a clear line between these strategies and actual efficacy. It's time we stop doing them. And we're confusing people. And fundamentally, this is a big part of the problem. We are giving people too much advice, and they're picking and choosing what to follow. And all too often, they're doing the things that aren't effective because people don't know better. People are not virologists. They're not viral physicists. So, you know, it's time to get some clarity, finally. None of this mealy mouth, well, maybe this and also this. We need clarity now more than ever. And I'm I'm encouraged to see Dr. Juni start talking seriously about this, but we need a lot more of it. What happened here in a situation like this? I mean, you and I talked about this over the last months now. Uh, there are people, and we, we've seen an awful lot of these on social media, that, that just plain, they're, they're against everything. They think vaccinations are wrong, they, yeah, and that's fine. You know, he shouldn't be wearing masks. Oh, you know, Fauci doesn't know what he's talking about. Dr. Tam doesn't know what she's talking about. And, and But did they cave into that and say, oh, we don't want any more negative views about what's going on? Because the overwhelming majority of us are, have been willing to pivot and say, okay, Maybe we don't need to do that anymore. We'll we'll do that. Okay, I I can understand some businesses. They might think, and I spend all this money on plexiglass. Yeah, I mean, I, I can still remember my wife and I going to one of our favorite restaurants up in Blue Mountain Village last year before Doug Ford shut everything down, and and it was plexiglass around every table. And I thought, boy, that's I guess if that's what works. Now we know that was wrong because the, the air can't circulate. 
take that stuff down. I'm okay with that. And I'm sure the shop owners are okay with it because that means they can get more people in there and start to make some money again and understand that there are things to do with this. I, maybe the people that are hesitant that you talk to here I don't understand the, the mood of the public. That well, Most of us are on side here. We're looking for direction, yeah. not obfuscation. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what really freaked out a lot of people in public health, and I understand why. The pivot that, that, that public health officials made around masks early in the pandemic, I think really spooked them. And I understand why. You know, the initial advice from public health was don't wear a mask, you know, out of fears that they will, people will sort of hoover up all of the medical masks that health officials desperately need. Understand, understand that. A little bit later, it was, eh, masks probably don't work. They're probably not effective. Don't bother. And then very quickly, it became, actually, please, for the love of God, wear a mask. The response from many in the public, who were at this point really afraid, really terrified, didn't know what to do, didn't know much about this virus, didn't know how to protect themselves or their family, they were understandably frustrated because there was this mm -hmm. feeling of, you know, there was a strategy you had that we could have been doing that could have saved a ton of people's lives that we weren't doing, you told us not to do, and now you're demanding we do it. I think when that sentiment reached public health, they took away the message, we can never again make this mistake. But they took the wrong lesson from it, which was, we'll never correct our mistakes again, right? And I think you're quite right. I think we've been through enough now that the public is fairly understanding that this thing moves fast. It's hard to understand how it works. Things are constantly changing. There is a ton of goodwill in the public for public health officials to come out and say, we got this slightly wrong. Here's the new advice. Here's a very simple strategy on how to protect yourself. But what they won't tolerate, I don't think, is public health officials saying, well, we actually knew this four months ago, but we didn't want to tell you. That, I think, is what's going to erode trust. That yeah, that, that's what kills the credibility, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, throughout this pandemic, we have seen politicians and public health officials, officials uh, you know, proposing and defending measures that we even knew at the time, we know now, we knew before, were ineffective and harmful. You know, watching Doug Ford ban children from playing in playgrounds, you know, trying to oppose a police state, to this day, sticks with me as one of the most anti-scientific, obscene, authoritarian measures I've ever seen. So, you know, I think the public has been through a lot, and all they want at this point is clarity, science, and simplicity. They want us to admit our mistakes, admit where we screw up, and, and fix what's not working. And the more public health officials and the more governments dwaddle and twiddle their thumbs, the angrier the public's going to be. I, I know we're just about out of time, but that, I'm reminded as uh, I reread your article again last night in our discussion today of the old thing that, you know, if keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. I mean, you know, that, it's insane that we know now, and now we're concerned. It's getting into wintertime. People are going to be congregating indoors again. Uh, story today, of course, about another variant that's uh, being seen in some places in Africa, and they're concerned about that. Uh, we need to get our act together, and we need to have an honest discussion with our, our officials and with our experts and say, okay, what's the strategy going forward? This is like this is like halftime at a football game. Okay, you know what? Well, this didn't work. Let's stop this. Let's change and do this. We 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 need that kind of an honest conversation here. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, even before governments get involved, we can do things ourselves, right? Buy a portable HEPA filter if you can. Keep the windows open at least a little crack. You know, wear your masks in in in, in big crowded areas and get vaccinated. I mean, at the end of yeah, the day, that's... vaccinations are going to be the most effective thing you could possibly do. If we can do those things and do them well, we're going to be in a good spot. But we have to keep those things up, and we have to stop dividing our attention on a bunch of things that just don't work. 
Uh, and that's the message. And, and I know we saved it right for the end, but maybe that's because I wanted it to be the thing that sticks in people's minds. Vaccination is still the number one tool that we can use here. Justin, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we, we need folks like you to, to keep digging like this and uh, get at the truth. Uh, and uh, it looks like more of us are starting to get on the same page, and that's a good thing, too. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, uh, who's been talking with this for quite some time. And, and great to see uh, people like Dr. Tam and Dr. Uni and so many others finally saying, yeah, uh, masking and, and vaccination. Those are the two big things. Some of this other stuff, eh, not so much. Uh, we'll stay on top of this for you, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for our uh, The Week That Was uh, segment, of course, what's going on in Canadian politics. And it was a rather raucous week because Parliament got back to work this week. Uh, depending on you know what you define as work. Uh, anyway, they had the speech from the throne at the beginning of the week and some uh, lively debate that's going on and, and some interesting revelations too. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, as you know, spent a lot of the uh, federal election campaign speaking virtually from a studio in downtown Ottawa. We knew that, but now the revelation that uh, that studio apparently cost a million dollars in party funds, sources tell Global News. Michael Couture has done the, uh, the research on this for Global News. And it looks at, uh, well, what he says, a lot of eyebrows being raised over that expense. So the Conservatives uh, bought this for a million bucks. Don't forget that this is taxpayer money. And some lingering questions about, well, O'Toole's leadership and some of the decisions he's made. Here's Mike's report. The slick, state-of-the-art studio built for Aaron O'Toole to beam his message directly to Canadians just before and during the last election. Multiple sources have told Global News the high-tech operation cost $1 million. When asked about it, O'Toole was unapologetic. We knew that Justin Trudeau would use the pandemic for his political favour and the studio was a way that we could connect with hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and we continue to use it through our party resources during the election. And apparently it was Justin Trudeau's fault they spent a million dollars in the studio, I guess. Anyway, to talk about this and lots more, let's uh, bring our friend Richard Brennan back into the conversation. Of course, former journalist uh, with the Toronto Star and the Torstar newspaper chain, uh, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back. I hope you're doing well these days. I am, Bill. How about you? Not bad. Uh, the, this little studio setup I've got here where I'm working remotely uh, for about the last 20 months now. It's a million dollars? Uh, did it cost Not much? really. Not really. I don't think we're quite that far yet. Uh, but boy, when you got taxpayers' money and you feel like spending stuff like this, hey, why not, right? Well, yeah, I'm not surprised, Bill, quite frankly. You know, there's an old expression, you got you got to you know spend money to make money. And no, when, when they're... Our tool had uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people tuning in, as he says, is another question. But I'm not surprised that they would spend a million dollars. You've got to remember, they're in opposition, and then they're doing their best to get their, their, their word out. The government's got all, all the programs and all the facilities available to them to do that, and, and certainly he is, uh, was, was doing his best. And, you know, the co- business where he said, well, they, they didn't know whether this election would be more virtual than it was uh, because of COVID. And you can almost make that argument. But I'm not, I'm not at all surprised at that. It's, it's, it's not taxpayers' money. I thought it was the party's money. And I, we, I know that the, the tax. Well, part of that money yeah. comes from the taxpayers' yeah, of course, because they all yeah. got the money from it. A good chunk of it, yeah. uh, in fact. But, you know, that's, that's the cost of uh, doing business as far as I'm concerned. But the other element to this, and, and this, this was a criticism that was leveled at him as he was doing this, 
is uh, is you know he was tucked into he was using the Stephen Harper you know political game here. Uh, you know I'm, I'm going to make my statement, boom bang, I'm, that's it. You know I'm not going to have the the Q and A. I'm not going to be doing this. Uh, and and it was basically uh, he looked like a guy that didn't want to be seen or didn't want to associate with the public nor with the media in situations like this. In other words, get my message out there and then turn the cameras off and off this. Uh, and yeah, and you're right. I mean, and, and I know Justin Trudeau took a different tact, and you can make the argument that while you win the incumbent, you can do that. But Jagmeet Singh was all over the place too. Uh, he was out there. He was you know, in spite of the pandemic you know, doing what he needed to do out in public discussions. It was a strategy that O'Toole tried. Uh, it didn't work for him, clearly. And now, of course, he's going to blame Justin Trudeau for it, like he blames everything else for on, on Justin Trudeau. Uh, it, it, I think it does raise some legitimate questions about the kind of priorities and the way these guys spend their money. Was, yeah, well, was this was, the best you know, campaign? Was it overused? I grant you, I believe that it was overused. He should have been out more. That's a, you know, we can all, all uh, quarter, you know, money more quarterback that. Uh, he he. If he'd use it for you know uh, strategically, but it, it became like you know you suggested it became a, a bit of a hide and seek uh, business after a while. You know, from the very beginning, with him just you know making comments and and delivering messages from that uh, the bunker, if you will, when he should have been out on the road and, and meeting people, and and that's that's. That's where you're really. People get to know you when when you visit their towns, villages across this great country. And if you don't do that, then you're losing something. But I can see why they they did it initially. Now whether they they you know they uh, held on to that too long in terms of doing stuff from the bunker, I would I would appreciate that uh, they did. But again, I the money doesn't uh, doesn't you know, uh, really throw me one way or the other. I, I know there was a pandemic and we were all concerned about the the effects of the pandemic. Uh, but the reality is, as you say, I mean, there still, still has to be old-time politics. You still have to get out there and, uh, well, maybe not press the flesh during a pandemic, but you, can st- you have to get out there. You have to be seen with the candidates, even if it's elbow bumping uh, and making the speeches and, and, you know, having the candidates uh, from whatever particular area is behind you uh, I know it's a phony photo op, but it's what they do these days, and it seems to be an effective way to politic. And and they just seem to kind of shoo that and say, "We are, we don't need to do that," uh, and and it didn't work for them. And it's it's I think it it's 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 all part of the package. Okay, and it's not just Aaron O'Toole; it's it's the people that make the decisions within the party too. I think it was a bad strategic move for them oh, as well. I, I, no, I, I agree with you. And, and just just like it, just like the vaccination stand has been a a bad strategic oh, move. Well, Here we go again bungled that from the very beginning and still bungling it i mean i mean how many you know that you know they say you know don't let a you know uh, a particular thing last more than 24 hours in the news cycle well brother he's been this has been dogging him for not weeks probably now months maybe about this vaccine and whether all all this uh, caucus is vaccinated or and what kind of excuses do they have? I just can't believe that they, he hasn't just laid down the law and say, this is it. You get vaccinated or you're gone, one or the other. Well, and it's, it's, it's come back to bite him again. I mean, with this thing about, you know, now they want to adopt the hybrid model, I guess, you know, embrace it once again uh, in Parliament. And, uh, you know, and he's, of course, blaming, the, again, the, the, the Trudeau government and saying, well, it's because these guys don't want to have any accountability. Uh, they're not going to show up at, at the meetings. The ministers aren't going to show up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, but, you know, Mark Collin, the government host leader, basically came back and said, well, okay, tell me how many people are in, in your caucus are vaccinated then, and we can put this thing to rest. And he won't do that yet. Does he even know? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. That's the question. Does he even know? I mean, his, his own caucus members refusing to let him in on whether they're vaccinated or not. And and that's that's another story, and, and it's, a, you know, it really undermines his position as a leader, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we know that apparently all the Liberal caucus members, all the NDP caucus members, uh, the Green Party member, I guess, they're they're up front. Yeah, here's our vaccination status. Uh, I, you know, the, the Conservatives are simply, they're making this the point. And uh, from a strategic standpoint, is this the hill they want to die on? Is this what they really want to stake their claim to? I mean, because even after, you know, the, the, the speech from the throne in that first day in question period, they stake the claim once again that they're going to challenge the, the ruling about having to be vaccinated to get in here. I mean, these guys won't let this issue go. And they're appealing to a minority. A small number of people, when you factored in all across the country, they're playing to that audience. And I just shake my head and go, are you, are, is there something? Did you fall down and hit your head? Like, what is it? Why, why are you appealing to this very small group, national group, that don't, you know, don't want to wear a mask, don't want to get a vaccination, and, and they think that's appealing to them is going to get them over the hump? That's where it just becomes ridiculous. And here's where political strategy, I think, comes into play, Badger. I mean, they seem to want to, to, to carry on with this issue. If they did just put it behind them and say, yeah, you're right, okay, you know, you're either vaccinated or you don't go in. There's a lot of other stuff that they could be chewing on right now, including the report that came out yesterday about the fact that Canada has the worst emissions record in G7 since 2015. Uh, as a matter of fact, over the last 15 years, they have the worst record. And so that predates the Trudeau government. That goes back to the Harper government as well. But that's the sort of thing that opposition parties would love to be able to wrestle with. But the, it's it's being pushed aside right now because they want to stick with this vaccination issue. And, and to your point, polling after polling done on a national level says, we don't care anymore, guys. We don't care. Get vaccinated and, and shut up. And he, they don't seem to get that message. Well, just to get back to that, Bill, you're, you know, they, they should be tackling. They don't want to tackle the environmental issue that this report that came out and 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 you know how we always read it's a, it was another damning report that this was a damning report. You know, it said that Canada has the worst record on emissions record that is in the G, in the G seven. Over three decades of governments have failed to actually put their money where their mouth is, and so they can't tackle it because they're just as guilty as the liberals are. So that's, that's, I think that's why they're, they're not getting into that fight, because their hands are as dirty as the Liberals. Yeah, the, uh, the Commissioner for the Environmental and Sustainable Development, is a fellow by the name of Jerry DeMarco, actually authored the report along with the staff, of course. Uh, and, and yeah, he talks about some of the deals that even Stephen Harper signed, and, and they reneged on those. And, and of course, we know about the record that they've got over the last four or five years when it comes to uh, Paris Accord and commitments and things of this nature. Uh, considering the fact that, that you know, Canadians are, are very much concerned about climate change and the environment. Uh, look what's happening in BC. Look what's happening in Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, we understand we're connecting the dots right now, and we want our elected officials to have that discussion and that debate right now. Uh, and your point's absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, the conservative history on this has been terrible. Uh, the conservative platform 
uh, in the last election about how to deal with climate change in the environment was 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 pretty shaky. So I, I can understand why maybe they don't want to push this thing forward now because it doesn't put them in a very good light either. But don't we as Canadians expect and demand that they have this discussion anyway? Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, the report makes it perfectly clear that we are already paying a costly bill for what's for global warming in terms of firefighting, in terms of, you know, looking after people whose homes and, and lands have been flooded and and the and and the heat wave that hit, hit BC and the and then lives lost, we we're already feeling that effect. And if anybody doesn't see that, then they're willfully blind. And they've got to get their heads around it, get it around now because it's only going to get worse. Hey, I'm no environmentalist, and and, and I'm not. One of these guys, you know, that'll go out and and tell you how to live your life. But I'm telling you right now, if we, if the government soon don't get serious about fighting climate change, then we're it's going to be a lost battle. That's the long and the short of it. Well, at all levels, I mean, you know, federally, provincially, and of course, municipally too. There's there's got to be discussion about that. And instead, we're talking about you know not fessing up to vaccination rates about whether or not it should be a hybrid model. Uh, the NDP, by the way, for those of you who are scoring at home, it was uh, the NDP that supported uh, the motion to go back into a hybrid model. The the Bloc and the Conservatives apparently uh, were not in favor of doing this. Uh, Mr. Blanchet has been on public record as saying he wants to get back. But of course, it's because his party is fully vaccinated. The liberals are fully vaccinated. Uh, there are some people that uh, that are still concerned about this going on, which is, I can understand the legitimacy of this. I know they want to politicize every decision they're making here. And I know that Mr. O'Toole and his team are, have tried to make this sound as if the liberals are running away from accountability, uh, which is pretty much what they said last time, too. But there are still some people with some legitimate concerns about this. That's why we haven't all gone back to the workplace, Neff. Uh, because we're concerned about who might have this and who might not be. And, you know, if you have a pre-existing condition, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of variables here. And if you don't know if the people sitting across the road, the, the, the aisle from you in, in Parliament have been vaccinated or not, and it's not just there, of course, because you associate in the cafeteria and the hallways, uh, there's some concerns there. Uh, a lot of this would go away if they just themselves deal with the vaccination issue within their own caucus. Bill, did you ever imagine that we would be, at this point, still arguing over whether we should be vaccinated or not? No, it seems it's, it's ludicrous. It, it is ludicrous. I, I mean, just I, I just can't get my head around it, that we're still dealing with it, and there are still people out there that are waving their hands in the air and saying, you know, the, the scientists are all wrong, and, it, you know, they're just experimenting with this and that. And it's just so much hogwash. And they're, they're delaying, are literally delaying, our ability to bounce back from this uh, pandemic. That's what it is. And, and we know that there are some, some voices that are frankly embarrassing to listen to, some political leaders and some of them, you know, governors down in the States and some others, uh, that, you know, about the anti-vax thing and they're, they're cozying up. To the, but they uh, individually, they've all been vaccinated. 
uh, they just don't, you know, they, they're trying to, to play to the anti-vaccine things. But And we always kind of look back there and said, well, thank God that's not going on in our country. Well, it is. No. And and I guess the, the thing that is most troubling, and, and as, as we've talked about in the past, is it, I'm getting the sense from his own comments that Mr. O'Toole is, is, is not with these people. He's vaccinated. He's encouraging everybody to get vaccinated. He's saying all the right things. We all saw him because he keeps reminding us that he and his wife did it publicly on TV. They got vaccinated in front of everybody. Why doesn't he insist on that same standard for his caucus like every other political leader has in this country? And that's what's holding it up right now. And who is he playing to and what's he hoping to accomplish? Because he's, you know, he's because of a mugwomp, they used to call it. You know, somebody that sits on a fence and can't make a decision one way or the other. And uh, and that's where, that's where he really is at this moment. Instead of taking a hard line, can you imagine if Harper was still around and he said you're going to get vaccinated, and I mean right now? Yeah, well, that's uh, you know, and that's echoing the comments, I guess, of Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about this, that he said, you know, if if I was still the prime minister and I were doing this, he said you would get vaccinated, or I'm booting you out of caucus. That that and he. And he did that with some people, and not necessarily about vaccinations, because that wasn't an issue back then. But you remember there were a couple of caucus members that didn't think his idea about uh, going after acid rain or a couple of other things were wrong. He said, fine, you're out of here. <laughs> you're, you're either on my team or you're not going to play ball. That's all. That's all there is to it. Yep. And he's, he's suggesting that Aaron O'Toole has to be that kind of leader. And, and Mr. O'Toole does not seem to agree with that. Well, he, he just has to make a decision. He, he just has to... He has to man up more or less, and I, you know, I hate to use that expression, but the the guy, he, uh, you know, I've, I know a little bit about him. I think I met him once, and uh, he just has to say, "This is this is the road we're taking, folks." And if you, you know, you don't want to ride on this this car, get off. And and I mean, you know, the rationale that he used, and a couple of his uh, his colleagues mentioned. As well, the vaccination rates in the country are really high. That's that's a moot point. It's what's going on on Parliament Hill. What's going on in that building? What's going on with those staff members and with those MPs? I don't care if in Kamloops or in a place else the vaccination is. It's right there in that particular piece of Ottawa. Uh, and that's what they don't seem to want to focus on. And it's 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 past ludicrous right now. It's embarrassing that, that our elected leaders are still talking about something like this. So what's your, what's your thoughts, uh, Bill, on uh, the new uh, Greenpeace uh leader i don't know anything about her no i no idea at all or uh, 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 you know fa- fabulous resume apparently from a, an educational lecture standpoint uh but uh, as you and i've talked about this is a party right now that uh, has to do some soul searching too about exactly who they are and what they stand for and uh, we'll see if the interim leader uh, wants to get involved in that debate sooner than later we're, we're out of time right now so that's going to well, something we'll have to set aside for next week, and perhaps we'll have a little more. Uh, I just got one thing to see before we leave. Sure. Uh, she's a physicist, right? Yeah. Maybe she stares, stares into space. She can find an answer to what, what uh, uh, you know, the problem, plague party that she's heading. Well, somebody needs to, and they have to identify that too. Uh, more to come on this, of course, next week, and we'll talk about it then. Have a great weekend, Badger, and uh, we'll talk again. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, so who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so long for the uh, Torstar newspaper chain. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on some great news. It's official now that uh, Canada's men's national soccer team will face the United States at Tim Horton Field in Hamilton, It'll be on January 30th, and of course it's all to do with the World Cup qualifications. 
and uh, and uh, just a, an exciting day for for everybody uh, in this area, but I think for Canadian soccer as well. Joining us to talk about the game itself and uh, the implications is uh, Dr. Nick Bodice. Dr. Nick Bodice, of course, is the president of Canada Soccer and a great friend of this program. Nick, great to talk with you again. I hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you. Just en route to uh, Vancouver for a Canada Soccer board meeting, but I'm glad to be on with you. You crisscrossing the country, Nick, doing all sorts of things going on crazy. And with CONCACAF going on and World Cup qualifying, it's just a crazy time. But a good time for Canadian soccer, isn't it? You know what, Bill? It's unprecedented times. Uh, I started my presidency uh, exactly a year ago. Uh, at that point in time, our men's team was, uh, you know, mired in a very, very difficult qualification through 41 CONCACAF countries. Our, our women's team didn't have a head coach. We hired, uh, obviously, Bev Priestman. She had been with the program before. Uh, we didn't know what the Olympics would hold. And now a year later, you know, our men are ranked, you know, we're, we're first place in CONCACAF. Our women just came back from winning a gold medal at the Olympics, which is amazing. And, and Forge FC locally here in Hamilton uh, it potentially could win a, a third title in a row and qualified for Champions League. So things uh, have never been better, but never been better. Well, and I still recall a conversation you and I had. I think you actually you called me from Moscow. It was just after it was announced that North America was That's going to right. be hosting a future World Cup. And, and Canada's, uh, is, is a, well, Toronto and Vancouver, we assume, are going to be uh, in line for some home games there and maybe some qualifying matches. There's a lot going on here. Uh, so this is, this is a great time uh, to, to, to be in, involved in this. Uh, you've been involved in this since you were knee-high to whatever, Nick, uh, of course, growing up and playing the game yourself. Uh, and now your kids, of course, are, are both outstanding soccer players uh, in, in the university level. Why has it all of a sudden hit, hit? Is it is it is it the Toronto FCs? Is it the Forge FCs? Is it the fact that it's finally it's in front of us? Uh, it's always been popular at, at a very u- uh, young level with youth, but all of a sudden it's starting to grow as a huge amount now in spe- as a spectator sport in this country. You know what? Uh, there's a lot of factors, Bill. I mean, first of all, you talked about the academies, a hundred percent. I mean, there was a large investment in the academies uh, about a decade ago when I started at Canada Soccer, and we're seeing the fruits of that labor now. So, you know, when, when, when young players have professional coaching, professional opportunities, uh, you know, access to science and nutrition and, and travel around the world playing against, you know, my sons have played against uh, Juventus and Barcelona, you know, some of the biggest names uh, in football in the world. Uh, it makes a difference. So a lot of the players that have had that opportunity to train in a professional environment, uh, you know, are now on our national team. And with regards to the fan base, I mean, soccer is, primarily driven by the immigrant population in Canada. Um, You know, a lot of them bring that passion of football that they have with them. Uh, You know, if you're from England, you know, you might be a Manchester United or a Liverpool fan. If you're from Italy, you might be a Juventus or an AC Milan fan. But you always loved soccer, but you didn't really have anything to cheer for, Bill. And now, you know, we've got one of the best women's teams in the world. And we have our men's team on the cusp of qualifying for the World Cup, which is unprecedented. So uh, I, I fully see... Uh, you know, many individuals, especially in Hamilton, you know, that you might be an Italian or a Serbian or a Croatian in Hamilton. You might have the Croatia flag on one side of your car, but you're definitely going to have the Canada flag on the other side of your car now during the World Cup. Well, and I've seen that evolution, too. And you and I have talked about this over the years, uh, you know, knowing friends in often the Italian community or whatever. And they say, oh, I, I, I'm not going to go. I'll go see Juventus if they play a friendly in Toronto. But, no. but now they're, t- they're TFC fans or they're watching Forge here. And they've, they've, they've clued into this. And they're saying, hey, this is, this is a pretty good brand of, of football. So they, they will grab to it. But I think your point initially, I think, is really where this is going. Is, is it grew with the youth. And as that generation has grown up, of course, they've fostered this. And now there's somewhere for them to play. I mean, not just your boys, but I mean, I know 
a lot of guys that were really good uh, soccer players and actually got scholarships down in the States or other places. Uh, but when they, you, you know, the Bennett family quite well, they're good friends of mine as well. Uh, there's no place for them to play. You know, now, now there's a venue for them. There's a place for them to play. There are leagues up here uh, for them to continue that career. And of course, to continue to foster the growth of the sport. It's not just, you know, clubs and leagues and facilities, which we have, you know, a bountiful in Hamilton, especially, but it's also the inspiration, Bill. I mean, you, you know, little girls can now look up to Christine Sinclair and say, I want to be here. I see her on TV. I see them putting a gold medal around her neck. I see that she is the, you know, world record holder and number of international goals scored. And, and, and that makes a big difference. And, and, and on the men's side, of course, you know, we have Alfonso Davies, who, you know, at 20, 21 years old, you know, is proving to be one of the best, uh, you know, backs, you know, on, on the planet, which is unheard of for a Canadian. How does, how does a Canadian go to Europe and become one of the best players in his position? So you've got to have these inspirational idols. You know, we have it in basketball. We have it in hockey. And, and now we're generating it in soccer as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the basketball analogy I think is a really good one. I can remember when, oh, there's a Canadian in the NBA. Wow, Bob Croft from Hamilton's playing in the NBA. Uh, then it was Leo Routens and then Steve Nash, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Canadians all over the place. And that's starting mm-hmm. to happen in, in professional soccer, too, and it's it's great to see uh, situations like that. Because I, I can remember uh, the, the old days. I mean, it was, it was Brian Budd and, and, and Leonard Uzi. That was about all we knew from the national yeah. team. And, uh, great athletes, but, I mean, they just weren't going anywhere. Both great right. guys, too. Uh, but now, as you say, you've got the Alfonso Davies. You've got, uh, you know, these these guys that are growing up in the league and and, and – the coaching is always a key part of this. And I know that's something that's always been near and dear to you. It's one thing to say, okay, there's a league or there's a club team here, but coaching them and making, you know, creating players that can compete at that level. It, it, you said it was going to take generations and I don't, I don't think we're there yet. You're never there yet. It's always going to be a target. This is going to be just a little bit ahead of where you're going to be right now, but we're, we're making huge inroads there. Yeah, we're making progress. I mean, obviously, I'm not sitting on my laurels. We've got a lot of work to do. You know, the, you know, the men are trying to qualify for 2022 in Qatar. The women are getting ready for the World Cup in Australia New Zealand. But there's a big, big pot of gold that I'm looking forward to, Bill, which is 2026. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I called you from Moscow, Russia, when we won the bid. This is just unprecedented, unheard of. This is not once in a generation. This is, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. And if you recall, Bill, when, when I spoke to you maybe 10 years ago, when we were still talking about what we were going to do with Iverwind Stadium back then, yeah. I remember talking about how important it was to, to you know, refurbish the stadium, to get it ready for Pan Am, and then also, once we are successful with Pan Am, to make Hamilton a FIFA location so that we could host World Cup qualifiers. And that's, you know, that's what we're intending to do on January 30th. I'm obviously very proud of bringing our men's national team. I, I want to absolutely sell out. I want the Americans to come up to Hamilton in the middle of winter and absolutely freak out and wish they never arrived. Let's beat them <laughs> up like we beat up the Mexicans in Edmonton, which I'm sure every Canadian saw a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago, which is you know the first time we beat up on the Mexicans in decades. And then what then happens is we prove to FIFA that Hamilton can be a global host city, which is what we want because in 2026, obviously, we want Hamilton to be a hosting city for one of the national teams to spend a month in our city. Well, and, and I guess... You have to expose people to the facility and to and to the atmosphere here, don't you? I think. Well, the first game I guess it was here was well, you and I were there. The, the friendly and the, the women's team here played. Uh, I yeah. think it was the UK in a friendly at, at uh, Tim right. Horton Field. That's right. And that was a great night. And I heard, and I know you did, 
uh, an awful lot of people that were here for the first time said, this is this is good. This is a nice facility. That, yeah, uh, And that grows. And of course, as you say, some of the CONCACAF stuff that's gone on with Forge, I think it's exposed more people to it as well. And uh, the, the, the location and, and the decision to come to Hamilton is, is fabulous. And as, as Hamiltonians, we're glad. Uh, I know part of the reason for this is geography, Nick, because, you know, the, the, the guys are playing a couple of games in a, three games, actually, in a very short order. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're going to be in Honduras and in Salvador, kind of sandwiched in between this, this game and Hamilton. So, you know, to stay in the time, same time zone is going to be beneficial. Uh, but over and above that, the fact that it's going to be here in Hamilton in January uh, is, is pretty special. And I think it probably speaks to the way that, uh, that you know, when we have hosted uh, friendlies here and in other competitions, it's gone well. And people, I think, are impressed when they come here and see what, what happens in Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a diamond in the rough. There's an opportunity for Hamilton to really show up here in a big way. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, when, when the technical staff, John Herdman and his team, are looking for hosting cities, uh, you know, a lot of factors go into play. But the most important one is, you know, the health and welfare of our players. And, you know, as you know, many of our players are coming, you know, from Europe. They're coming from Germany. And it's a, it's a very, very busy window, Bill. You know, you, we've got to go to Honduras, come back, go to El Salvador all within a week. Uh, and it's taxing on the body, and and not just physically, but mentally as well. So, you know, in, in their analysis of all the potential sites in January, and let's be honest, grass doesn't necessarily grow that well in January either <laughs> in Canada. So there weren't that many options in the end that were left over. And, uh, you know, John Herdman and his technical staff selected uh, Hamilton. Of course, I couldn't be uh, more pleased than, than than anyone to, uh, to to host everybody here. And I just look forward to, to building momentum. You know, we've got a couple of months to build momentum. Tickets will go on sale, obviously, through Ticketmaster. We'll, we'll announce that in a couple of weeks. But, and I would just love to sell it out and actually just make it an absolute raucous event. And, you know, what a wonderful opportunity for Hamilton, you know, hosting the Grey Cup, hosting the World Cup qualifier, hosting a hockey game, and Forge hosting a CPL championship as well. I mean, four massive events at the stadium, uh, you know, within a couple of months of each other was, is amazing. Yeah, we just got to have to camp out in the stadium, I guess. We're going to spend a lot of time there. <laughs> I know some people, Nick, have questioned, hey, you know, what are you doing playing a game in, in January outside here? Uh, as they did in Edmonton. and But if this is, when you're qualifying, there's a little gamesmanship that goes on here, as you and I have talked about in the past. I mean, you know, even when Mexico play their home games, I mean, you know, whoever they're playing, they play at such an altitude, you can actually see the rivets on the International Space Station. I mean, <laughs> they all, and, you know, and, and besides, the Americans, I think just a couple of days before that, are playing a game in Minnesota. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's what you do, right? It is what it is. Hey, hey, Bill, you know, I'm a strategy prof at the end of the day, yeah. right? It's all yeah. about strategy. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the Americans are playing in Minnesota because they saw what we did in Edmonton. I mean, just imagine what happened when the Mexicans, you know, got off a plane in Edmonton and probably said, where the <laughs> hell are we? How, how, how are we going to survive in this? And, uh, you know, it worked to our favor in the end. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that this is going to happen with the Americans as well in Hamilton, but the truth of the matter is, you know, football in most parts of the world is played throughout the winter. Obviously, it's not in Canada. You know, most youth soccer goes, you know, from spring to the fall, but... For the rest of the world, that is the calendar. So that was the challenge before us, was to find a place to play, and, and we will play it. I, I hope the weather holds tight, uh, but I'm sure the staff at, uh, at uh, Tim Hortons Field will do their best uh, to make uh, the, uh, the field in as best condition as possible and to give the fans the best experience possible as well. Well, and for those of us that are watching Premier League on the weekend mornings here, too, I mean, there's some pretty crappy weather over in the UK this time of year, of course, too. So of you course. play in what you have to play in. I got to ask you, I, I know your time's tight and you got a flight to catch, but yeah. uh, 
you mentioned about the success of the women's team and the men's team. Right. Uh, and you can't have that discussion without talking a little bit about John Herdman. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know if the, the Order of Canada or something. And I, <laughs> I don't want to start counting our chickens here. Nick. I mean, we're in a good place right now when it comes to the qualifying round because of where we are. Uh, but this guy has worked wonders with the women's team and then transferring over to the men's team. Yeah. Uh, some This guy's got the touch. And I, 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 I know there's a lot to coaching. You have told us about that all the time. Uh, but this guy just, no matter what you throw at this guy, he says, I can make this work. And he's made it work in such a big way here. This is, this is a really unique team. And you talk about the stars like, like Alfonso Davis and, and, and Kyle Lauren and others. Uh, well, and we should also talk about the fact that by the way, when they finally play here too, uh, for uh, the goalkeeper here, Milan Borjan, yeah. this is like a home game. This is his adopted city. He loves Hamilton. Of course. Spent a lot of his, his early years here, <laughs> but, but they, they rally around this guy. I mean, Herdman's got this touch, this magic touch. Well, it goes to show you how much of this is a mental game at the most elite level of the pyramid, right? It, it is about, you know, the mental capacity to want to win, to have the confidence. At the end of the day, I'm John's boss, so I can only say so much about John. But the truth of the matter is, you know, he turned around our women's program and he left a legacy there, which is why Bev Priestman is doing so well with the women. Yeah. You know, Bev worked under John's tutelage and now he's doing the same on the men's side. I think it's unprecedented. I don't think you're going to find a, a, any, a coach anywhere in history on the planet who has actually done what John has done, uh, you know, for, for both genders. It's, it's an amazing story. But the real amazing story, Bill, is when we qualify for the World Cup. So I'm going to hold off on my commentary. Okay. Uh, obviously, wish John <laughs> the best. But, you know, that'll be the exclamation mark if that happens. Well, and a big part of that is going to be the game coming up on uh, the 30th of January at Tim Horton right. Field. Uh, I just caution people, if you're going out to do some uh, some uh, Black Friday shopping today, uh, buy red, okay, if you're going to buy clothing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, scarves, scarves, hats, uh, to whatever you want to buy. Uh, and I agree. I think we're going to pack the place on, on, on January 30th. And I think it's going to be just a fabulous night. Uh, well, Nick, congratulations. To you and everybody uh, else there. Yeah, yeah, to you and everybody else, of course, at, so at Canada Soccer. Uh, you know, as you say, we're in a good place right now. There's a lot of work yet to be done, but uh, baby steps. And one of those steps, of course, is going to be this game in Hamilton. Thanks so much for the time today, and I know we'll talk again uh, soon. We'll talk again soon. Take care, Bill. Thank you. You Bye-bye. betcha. Dr. Nick Bonas, who, of course, is the president of Canada Soccer. And as you know, Mick, uh, Nick also is a uh, professor at uh, McMaster University, of course, and uh, always a great uh, resource when it comes to talking about motivation and about planning and strategic planning. And uh, he knows a thing, too, about soccer, too to be sure the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcast from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review